are continuing our series on the gospel of Luke, the life and teachings of Jesus, right? Because that's what it is. That's what the gospel of Luke is all about. It's about the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, okay? We covered a lot of ground last week in chapter 8. We had two parables, a miraculous stilling of the storm, a demonic exorcism, a woman healed of a 12-year hemorrhage, and Jairus' only daughter, well, 12-year-old girl, is raised from the dead by Jesus. The parables that we covered, okay, were interconnected. A lot of people, you know, don't see them as connected, but very clearly they are. In the parable of the soils, Jesus explained in detail all of the elements of the story, which, like I told you last week, was very unlike him. Usually just kind of has a little principle at the end, but he explains every detail of the story to the disciples. The seeds represent the word of God, and then he labels every kind of soil, what it represents, what happened to the seeds, and why. And the good soil, the very last soil, is the hope and conclusion of the parable. It says the good seeds are those who heard the word, the word of God, in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance 100-fold. And that's what we want to be. You want to be good soil? Yeah. We want to be good soil to bear fruit. The parable of the lamp follows that, the parable of the soil, and amplifies and clarifies it. We are the light. We have the light of the word of God, and we need to keep shining that around. We need to keep sharing it, planting it, and sowing it. So that parable amplified the parable of the soils. In Luke's account of the stilling of the storm, the message is simple. Jesus has power and authority over nature. But it's very interesting at the end, the disciples who know exactly who Jesus is, they say, who then is this? Because they learned something about Jesus that they didn't know. They knew him, but it's like, who is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. It's like, we thought we knew who this was, but this is totally different. Jesus releases a man from demonic forces, not one demon, but many demons. The man was completely enslaved, but Jesus gave his life back to him. He was like, and Jesus does that today with people that go through addictions and go through terrible times in their lives. The Lord has a way of coming into our lives and giving life back to us where we've messed up. He, he does that. He's still doing that today. Jesus heals a woman when she touched the fringe of his cloak. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. But it was her faith specifically in Jesus that healed her. Jesus had made her well. He even said, I felt the power go out of me, but her faith is what brought that on. And the last event in chapter 8 is about Jairus' only daughter. Jesus is on his way. Jairus says, please, you got to help me with my daughter. She's very sick. So Jesus is on his way to help her, and then some people show up from his house and say, oh, too late. She said, don't bother Jesus anymore. But Jesus responds with confidence and compassion and comfort. He says to Jairus and the others, he says, do not be afraid anymore. Only believe and she will be made well. And sure enough, that's what happens. He goes to her, she's dead. He calls her, arise, and she does. Her spirit returns and she comes back to life. The dead are raised. Who does that? Jesus does that. The Messiah does that. And Luke wants us to know that Jesus does things that only God can do. He's the Messiah. 
He wants us to know that, very clear. This week, chapter 9 starts off with a pre-commissioning of the 12 disciples. It's sort of a training exercise. When I train some, some people to do something for me around the church or something, I have a three or four step process. This is it, okay? I do the task and you watch me do it, okay? And then we do the task together. And then you do the task and I stand back and watch. And if that goes well, then you're on your own, right? It's a training thing. This is kind of like that. The disciples have been following Jesus for a long time, watching, listening, learning from the master about how they should be. And he sends them on a test run to see how they will do on their own because he knows the crucifixion is coming. And he's going he's to be very pointed about that later in the chapter. Okay? He knows that that is coming. So he gives them some detailed instructions about what to bring, what not to bring, what to do, and what not to do. Okay, so listen for that as I read chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. So somehow Jesus imparts this authority and power that he, we've already learned that he has. Somehow he gives that to the apostles. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, this is it, this is the details. Take nothing for your journey. Obviously, this is not what a Girl Scout would do or a Boy Scout would do, right? So, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics. Don't even take a change of clothes, what he's saying. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you leave the city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began to go throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Would you pray with me? Lord God, let the words of our mouths, the words of my mouth today, and the meditations of our hearts, the way they are received, um, may that be acceptable in your sight and be honoring to you. Lord God, I pray today that these words of Scripture, that these words of Scripture would sink deep into our ears, deep into our understanding, to understand just what it means to follow you, being who we are in our situation, in this time, and in this place in Leesburg, Florida, how we can follow you more effectively. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you are saying to us individually and corporately as your church body. We pray in your name, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So the 12 go out among the villages preaching the good news and healing lots of people. King Herod the Tetrarch, and by the way, the word Tetrarch means a governor over four provinces, okay? And that's who Herod is. That's who King Herod is, the Tetrarch. He's heard about Jesus and his disciples and all the buzz surrounding this new upstart rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. He'd heard about him. Uh, we learn here in chapter 9 in a couple of places that there are a lot of rumors about Jesus, circulating about Jesus, what he's done and who he is. There are miracles, signs and wonders, even rumors that the dead are being raised. Of course, we know they weren't just rumors. Some are saying that Jesus may even be one of the prophets of old who has risen again. So Herod is very curious. He wants to know more about Jesus. It's kind of like the slogan of the magazine, the National Enquirer. You remember their slogan was? Inquiring minds, 
Yeah, inquiring mind wants to, and that's certainly him. Herod wants to know, what's up with this guy? So in verses 7, 8, and 9, this is what Luke writes. Verses 7, 8, and 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because, he, because it was said by some, okay, by some, that John had risen from the dead. Now this is not John the Apostle. This is John who? The Baptist, John the Baptist. Why? Well, because he's dead. He's dead. And um, it's very important that, we, that you understand that, remember I said that the Gospel of Luke is church history, but it lines up with secular history. Okay, it lines up with secular history. Um, in, um, I told you about Josephus, who was a historian of the time, and how he mentions John the Baptist. He mentions John the Baptist, that he was killed by Herod, and that's the reason Herod lost some battle. That's what people were saying. He also mentions Jesus of Nazareth. They are historical figures. So John is dead. And by some, they say, Elijah appeared. By others, they say, prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. There it is. And Josephus reports that in his history. Okay? But who is this man about whom I hear such things? Of course, it's Jesus. And he kept trying to see him. He kept trying to see him. So Herod has heard the word about Jesus, and he wants to meet him. Now, if you remember, in the beginning of chapter 8, the first three verses, Luke mentions several names of people who were involved in the ministry of Jesus and also who were in support, like financial support, for Jesus and the Twelve. Remember, he introduced Mary Magdalene, but he also introduces Susanna, not old Susanna, but Susanna, right? Susanna, she's a supporter of the ministry, and Joanne, the wife of Chusa, who Luke identifies as someone who worked for King Herod. He was a steward. He was a manager for King Herod. So Herod may be getting some of this information about Jesus by that connection. We don't know, but it would make sense. Maybe he heard it from Chusa, who heard it from Joanna, who's supporting Jesus in his ministry. But he wants to know about Jesus, and he wants to meet him. So in the next eight verses, verses 10 through 17, we see that the disciples return from their test run, right? Their test run in ministry. And they gave an account to Jesus of all that they had done. After that, Jesus takes the 12 disciples with him to the city of Bethsaida. Okay? Now, Bethsaida is on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, just to the east of where the River Jordan flows into the Sea of Galilee. That's where Bethsaida is. And the crowds, they go there for some R&R, &R, basically. Jesus withdraws. He needs some time. But the crowds follow them to Bethsaida, where Jesus continues to minister to their needs. And that sets up the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 somewhere near Bethsaida, not in Bethsaida, but somewhere near Bethsaida. So 10 and 11, verse 10 and 11 says this, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him, to Jesus, of all that they had done. Taking, taking them with him, Jesus withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and they followed him and welcomed them. They followed him. So Jesus didn't say, no, get out of here. I need some rest. It says he, that he welcomed them. And he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had been in need, who were in need of healing. Then verse 12 goes on to say, now the day was ending. Some versions say declining. It was getting toward evening, I guess. And the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away 
that they may go to the surrounding villages and the countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here, we are in a desolate place. The original Greek actually said there were no Publixes or Winn-Dixies. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just, don't, don't tell anybody I said that. I'm messing with you. All right. But they were in a desolate place. There were, imagine a world without McDonald's. Okay. They were in a desolate place. There was nowhere to go to get food. Nowhere to go. So verse 13, he says, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. You see, that is the way that Luke sets up the feeding of the 5,000. This miracle is recorded in all four of the Gospels, and it's very similar, okay? John has a slight variation because he mentions this little boy who's the source of the two fish and the five loaves of bread. But that element is not present in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So listen to the rest, verses 13 through 17. It says, but he said to them, they said, oh, send them away. He said, no, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. And Judas, the treasurer, would say, we ain't got the scratch. You know, we can't do that. Okay? It says this, for there were 5,000 men. Okay? It didn't even mention the women and the children that would be there. 5,000 men. That's a lot of people, isn't it? And he said to his disciples, have them sit down and eat in groups of about 50 each. Do you know how many groups that would be, Shannon? A <laughs> hundred groups, right? A hundred groups of 50. 5,000 men. Can you imagine that? Remember when I was talking about the demoniac who said his name was Legion? And we were wondering how many demons it was? And I looked up Legion. There's like 5,000 men in a legion, right? You can imagine that on this property here. People sitting in a hundred groups of 50. That's a lot of people. Oakwood could not handle that, right? It's amazing. Have them sit around in groups of 50, 100 groups. So they did so, okay? Had them, they had them sit down, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. So he's breaking the bread and giving, breaking, giving, breaking, giving, breaking, giving. And then it says this. It says, and they all ate and were satisfied. It's not like he gave them a protein bar to just hold them over. You know what I'm saying? They ate until they were satisfied. They were full. They were full, and they stopped. They were so full, they stopped eating. It said, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up 12 baskets full. Can you imagine that? 12 baskets full. They couldn't eat any more. They couldn't eat any more. So, 12 baskets of leftovers, 5,000 people, a legion, basically Jesus feeding a Roman legion, right, of men. And then there were women chilling on top of it. With two fish that were probably the size of a large speckled perch or a tilapia and five loaves of bread. Um, I've heard this passage used by certain speakers uh, for fundraisers for a for, uh, capital fund for buildings. And um, I've heard them use this before. And I get it, you know, it fits. God multiplies what we, what we need when, when we give for his purposes. But to be honest, okay, to be honest and to be very biblical, which I try and do, this is not about that. This story is not about fundraising. Okay, this story is about one thing, and that's compassion. It's about compassion. That's the main thing. 
It's compassion for people, and Jesus is our example for that. Yes, the miracle is, a, is of biblical proportion. <laughs> 5,000 plus people, Roman legion, 100 groups of 50, and more. A legion of people. But the point, the lesson, and the motivation is compassion. That's why it happens. That's why it happens. When we give something out of compassion to meet the needs of hungry and hurting people, God multiplies not just what we give, but our efforts. It's about compassion. For instance, Don Diamond sitting back here, president of the food bank. This would be the perfect text, Don, to preach at a fundraiser for the food bank or for a homeless shelter or for the Samaritan Inn. Because it's about compassion. This is about compassion for people and how God multiplies our efforts and our resources when we give to help people, to help people out. In verse 18, the scene shifts to a very serious discussion that Jesus is having with the disciples. And in this discussion, Jesus is asking most of the questions and the disciples are giving most of the answers. That's the way this conversation goes. The main questions are, number one, who do people, he's asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he looks at them and he says, yeah, but who do you? That's question number two. Who do you say that I am? Which is really the more important question. And when they answer, it sounds very familiar to what we just heard that the rumors that Herod had heard about Jesus back in verse 8 and verse 9. Very similar to that. All right, it was Elijah, it was this, it was that, whatever. And then for the second question, Peter answers that for all the disciples because Peter is the leader. He says, who do you say that I am? He says, thou art the Christ, the Christ of God. And in verse 22, Jesus reveals the end game. What's going to happen? What's coming? It's the end game of his ministry, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. So listen for that as I read verses 18. Through 22. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. See, it's just like what Herod had heard. And then he said to them, But who do you say? Who do you say? And Peter answered. He said, the Christ of God. I believe Matthew says, Christ, the son of the living God. It's Peter's famous confession. But Jesus warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. And then he said this, saying, the son of man, this is the end game. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And raised on the third day. And raised on the third day. So Jesus reveals the end game of his rescue mission for the world. And for us, by the way. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be re rejected by the religious establishment in Jerusalem and Israel. And he will be killed, but he will not stay dead. He will not stay dead. He will be raised on the third day. Very important. But he's explaining to them, this is going to happen. You need to understand this. In the next six verses, verses 23 through 27, 
this serious conversation shifts from the end game of Jesus to the trajectory of the disciples and what it will mean for them to faithfully follow Jesus, right? Because it's coming, right? His crucifixion is coming. And of course, that also applies to us because we are followers of Christ, right? We are the modern day disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. That's us. So when I read this passage, I want you to listen to this for the disciples from their perspective and how they heard it. But I also want you not just to listen for the disciples, but listen for yourselves, for us as the modern day disciples. So starting at verse 23. It says, and he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, follow me, right? He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, he's speaking as a metaphor there. He doesn't mean pick up a wooden cross. There was a person, you remember Arthur Blessed, and he would walk all over the country with a cross over his shoulder. He took that very literally. Nothing wrong with that. He was just reminding people of this passage. But what Jesus meant by that is not just pick up this physical, but self-sacrifice. Do whatever you need to do to follow me, and it may not be easy. That's what he's saying. Deny yourself, self-sacrifice. Take up your cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And this next verse, verse 27, is a transitional verse. It says, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, some skeptics read that and they go, oh, there's no way those people could live to the, the second coming. This is not about the second coming. You're right. There's probably no people that were there then that would live to the second coming. This, he, said, he didn't say the second coming. He said the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, if you remember, Jesus, when he came and he started his sermon, he said the kingdom of God is what? At hand. It's right here. It's right at the edge. Well, the kingdom of God is initiated and put into play in his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and then the day of Pentecost when the church is born. Remember I told you, who's the kingdom of God? We are the kingdom of God. And those people that were standing there when Jesus said that, when he's talking about in verse 27, most of them were there at the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, not maybe not the ascension, but then also at the day of Pentecost, right? They were there. All right, this next event in the life of Jesus is recorded in Matthew and Mark, but it's also mentioned in a letter that Peter wrote to the early church, which is kind of unusual. It's like one of the events in the Gospels is in this epistle that Peter wrote. If you want to write it down, you can go home and look it up. I, don't, I didn't put it on the screen. It's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He mentions the same event that's in Matthew and Mark. The event is called the transfiguration. It's a big word, but this is what it means. Okay, here's the definition. Transfiguration means a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. That's what happens to Jesus on the mountain in the presence of Peter. It says Peter, John, and James. So Peter was there according to Luke's gospel. So Peter himself 
mentions this in his letter in 2 Peter. It's really cool how that all ties together. Peter saw all of that, right? That's what happens to Jesus. He takes them there to pray, and while he's praying, he changes in appearance. His face and his clothes. Verse 29 kind of reminds me of a Tide commercial. Did you ever see those Tide commercials? This is what it says. It says, his face became different and his clothes became white and gleaming. Did you ever see the Tide commercial where there's like, they did it at the Super Bowl. It reminded me of that when I said that. But that's the transfiguration. His face changed and his clothing became white and gleaming. But as that happened, two other people appear on the scene. And they're talking with Jesus. And Luke tells us that it's Moses and Elijah. That's how we know. He told us. And they're speaking with Jesus about the end game strategy that we talked about. That Jesus just told the disciples, the Son of Man must suffer, he will be killed, and he will be raised on the third day. It says that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about that and what is going to go down and how it's going to go down in Jerusalem. Peter, the leader, gets this great idea to build three tabernacles, one for each of them. And when a cloud rolls in and appears, which is kind of like God making the tabernacle, right? It appears, once again, God's voice is heard in the cloud. Do you remember the last time God's voice was heard? At Jesus' baptism, right? He said, this is my son in whom I am what? Well, pleased. Well, this is very similar, but it comes from the cloud. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So listen for that as I read verses 28 through 36. Some eight days after these sayings, when he was talking about all those things, he took along Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his faith became different. He started changing, right? And his clothes became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. While appearing in glory, and were speaking, they were speaking of his departure, which is going to be from Jerusalem after his crucifixion, resurrection, his ascension, he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, right? Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. What is it about these people and sleeping well? How could you sleep through that? But they do. But when they were fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving, as, as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. In other words, Moses and Elijah were gone. It was just him, Peter, John, and James that were still there. And they kept silent and reported no, to no one in those days of any of the things that they had seen. But Luke reports it, and Peter also reports it later in his letter in Second Timothy. In Second Timothy. In verses 37 um, through 45, once again, Jesus shows compassion. And he shows compassion to a family for their youngest son, who is in bondage of demonic possession. 
Jesus also warns them in this section about what is going to happen to him in the months and weeks ahead. So he warns them again. So listen to verses 37 through 45. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, that's where they were, they came down from the mountain where the transfiguration occurred, a large crowd met him. Remember, Jesus had crowd problems, right? Said that last week. Crowd control problems. And a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And then the father goes on to explain why. He says, and a spirit seizes him and suddenly screams and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. That's the father explaining what happens to him. And then he says this, the father says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Oh, this is going back to the, to the training exercise, right? I guess that part didn't go so well. They tried to cast out this demon but they were not able to do it. So Jesus says this, he says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here, bring him to me. (laughs) And while they were still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Remember where Jesus rose um, that person from the dead, the son from the dead, and gave him back to his mother. Here it says, and he gave him back to his father, free, free of the demon. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to the disciples, here we go, let these words sink into your ears. What's he talking about? You need to know this. Don't forget this. This is important. Don't be not paying attention. Pay attention. Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to the hands of men, into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. They were afraid to ask him about it. See, it says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They did not understand, and they were afraid to ask. But they've got to know, right? How many times is this now that Jesus is bringing this up? They've got to know. Something's coming. And Jesus is becoming more and more open about it and more and urgent about it. In these next five verses, Jesus reveals two principles. Verse 46, it says, an argument started among them. And who is them? The disciples, right? An argument started among the disciples as to which of them might be the greatest. What a humble bunch of people, right? They're just, I can't imagine being like them. They're these stained glass saints. No, they're not. They're like Rob. They're like me. They're like Ron. They're like, they're like Colleen, okay? They're like us, right? They're like us. And it sounds to me like they got a little ego going on, right? Right? Not such a humble group. Not such a humble group. But then Jesus says, he says this, okay? He says, but Jesus knowing what they were thinking, in other words, he knew what they were thinking in their heart. They're thinking, I'm better than Peter, James. I'm better than John. You know, I'm, I'm better than these other people, right? I should be the greatest, right? He knows what they're thinking in their heart. And he took a child and stood him by his side. This was a lesson for the disciples. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, who is God the Father. 
For the one, listen to this, here's the lesson. This is what he wants them to get. For the one who is the least among all of you is the one who is great. I guarantee you that's not what they were thinking, <laughs> but that's what he wants them to know. And so he's teaching them. That's principle number one. And this is just the way I put it. The person who thinks that they're all that and insists on being a big shot, that attitude ranks them as the least in Jesus' eyes and in the kingdom, right? But the one who is humble, unassuming, and servant-hearted, they are ranked as the greater. It's almost the reverse of what the world teaches. And many of Jesus' teachings are like that, okay? Mark's gospel says it this way. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be what? Last in all. Last of all, the servant, the slave of all. It's Mark 9, 35, if you want to look it up. Verses 49 and 50 teach the second principle. 49 and 50. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent them. We tried to stop them, what he's saying, because he does not follow along. He's not one of us. He was using your name, and he was trying to cast out demons. But then Jesus says this, but Jesus said to him, do not hinder him. Don't, don't tell him to stop. For he who is not against you is for you. That's principle number two. He who is not against you is for you. He's trying to do a good thing. He's trying to do a good thing. So don't, don't stop him. Hopefully he'll be successful. You know? Verse 51 tells us when the days were approaching for his ascension, that's his departure, right? He, is, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Let me say that again. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Some versions say this. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Other versions say it another way. So I looked it up in my Greek text and translated it word for word. And it literally, with the word order and everything, it's exactly like this. Okay? It says, and his face, kai prosopon, and his face he set. The word means set or established. And his face he set to go to Jerusalem. To go to Jerusalem. So this sentence in the ninth chapter of Luke really is a midpoint for the gospel and a turning point in the gospel and in the life of Jesus. Because what's he been doing up to this point? He's been revealing who he is to the world, right? And he's been saying, oh, sh 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 don't, don't let this go around too much because he knows he doesn't want things to happen too quickly. He has so much he needs to accomplish before his crucifixion and resurrection, and ascension. But this is the turning point. He set his face. His fa actually, it says his face he set to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to finish this rescue mission, knowing what that means, his crucifixion. So he's going to continue for the rest of Luke doing what he's been doing, but he's getting closer and closer to that time, and he knows it. Chapter 9 um, Chapter 9 closes our chapter for today with a lesson on discipleship, priorities, commitment, self-sacrifice, and a lesson on faith and following Jesus and what that means. It harkens back to what Jesus said in verse 23 and 24 of this chapter. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, which is follow me, right, he must deny himself or herself and take up his cross daily and follow me and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. You're going to hear that 
as I read the last section of our chapter for today, verses 57 through 62. So listen for that. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And it's kind of like Jesus saying, oh yeah? Then he says this. Do you know what you're getting into? He doesn't say that. He says this. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You need to know what you're asking for. And then Jesus said to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. The point is God needs to be first, right? God needs to be our top priority. It sounds like a little bit cold there, but it's not. He's making a point. He says God needs to be first before all of these other things. Verse 61, another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, here's the last verse, the very last verse. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. All of those things that were just mentioned are situational metaphors for putting God what? First. They're all situational metaphors for putting God first in our lives, putting Jesus first on our list of priorities because that's what it means when we say Jesus is our Lord and he's our master, that we follow him. That's what it means. He's first in our lives. And that last line is the clincher. He says, no one after putting his, I love the imagery, no one after putting his hand to the plow, starting the work, and looking back, which means having second thoughts, oh, I'm not sure I want to do this. Right? He says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God.